0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit MPBOnline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Join us each week for
1: Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel.
0: From MPB Think Radio, this is Deep South Dining, the show all about the culture of Southern flavor and the folks that love to stir the pot. Good morning, Malcolm White with Carol Palmer. Today we will be your guides, as usual, on this Monday morning. Today on the show we welcome Natalie King, affectionately nicknamed the Chinese Southern Belle. Natalie is also known as the Sauce Maven. Carol and I love a good sauce. She's got a brand new line of award-winning foods, heritage recipe cooking sauces, and she's released her very first cookbook, Egg Rolls and Sweet Tea, Asian-Inspired Southern Style. Natalie talks with us about the blending of cultures, her Southern roots, and making people feel seen and heard through food. We'll also talk about some latest headlines in the food world and enjoy having you join us if you're so interested Oh yeah! Good morning. It's Deep South Dining right here on MPB Think Radio. Good morning, Carol. Morning, Mal. Wonder what
1: Java's thinking in the booth hmm. in there. Sounds like belly dancing, not ballet. Mm,
2: I don't oh, know. We what got that a is. little. Yeah, I yeah, think well, that's
0: Asian music. Yeah, there was a little Asian inspired um, because of our guests that we're gonna we're gonna hear from later on this uh, this hour. You're not okay. feeling it. Okay.
1: Well, no, I'm, I'm feeling it now because okay. I've got dance on my brain because the international ballet competition. Is here,
0: which I have after learned, five years. is a it, it's still amazing. I was talking with Malcolm a little bit earlier. Still amazes me how you know my hometown is the place for this an immense, this you know monumental know. international ballet competition.
1: And it it's uh, this is the forty fourth. We've had it now for forty four years, and it was amazing that it ever happened. Uh, a woman named Thalia Mara,
0: the Thalia Mara, the
1: Thalia Mara, a small in stature, big in ideas and everything else, came to Jackson to be the um, leader of the Jackson Ballet, the right. executive director of the Jackson Ballet, and it was the first international ballet competition was in Varna, Bulgaria, and Moscow, and Helsinki, and she said, "Why not Jackson?" and People thought she was crazy, but she rightly thought, why not? Southern hospitality, plus the big factor, was we do love sports, and there is nothing more athletic than. Ballet, and you—you know—it was the first—the uh, first time we had it. I remember reading in Newsweek that applause was mixed with rebel yells, you know, Yahoo, <laughs> yeah, you know, every time a dancer Yeehaw! left the air, going you know, jump and jumped into the air. But it's an unlikely—the you know, auditorium is filled with an unlikely mix of people who love athletic competitions, and we've all become dance lovers through it. So. Uh, I'm encouraging everybody to get tickets. It's going through June 24th. 24th.
0: Yeah. Now, Carol, you're on the board of the International Ballet Competition, and I know you've been working hard for all four years leading up to this. But my wife is a volunteer. Uh, and she helps supply food for the dancers. I Why don't you talk a little? Her,
1: I saw her name on the. I was looking this morning. That's that's quite something. So
0: she's hauling food back and forth uh, along with. Um, uh, well, I forget who the cha- who chairs that committee. But uh, tell us a little bit about what dancers eat and what sort of foods uh, you could expect a ballerina or hip hop dancer to eat.
1: You know, lots lots of lean protein. I mean, they have got to have incredible energy while at the same time, you know, keeping their bodies really fit. There are no fat ballet dancers. And they do not eat fried food. But they, they eat multiple times a day to keep their energy level
2: mm-hmm.
1: up. And, you know, a lunch might be a lean protein, a fish or chicken. And then something like a rice or an orzo or a grain, hmm. and always fruit or dried fruit, fruit which is great for energy. And then lots of yogurt. There is so much yogurt in this town right now. All
0: right. You just wouldn't. We got even it. Believe. We got it
1: wrapped we got, up. We have got the yogurt wrap, wrapped up. And then they do healthy snacks like we all should do. Lots of nuts for uh, snacks and dried fruit and. You know stuff that keeps the energy up because they've got to have a lot of calories and a lot of energy. But we are feeding them uh, at multiple locations. The competitors stay at Millsap, so that cafeteria has to cater to the dancers and you know, a lot of vegetarian options. And mm-hmm. then we feed the dance school at Bellhaven. And then downtown at the convention center is where they rehearse and take class right. and lots of meals going going through there. So but um, a, thank your wife.
0: Oh, yeah. She's having a big time. She enjoys it. She did it four years ago, and she's really enjoying doing it again this year.
1: Well, it takes like 500 volunteers. Yeah, And they are volunteers everywhere. So I'm looking forward to seeing both of y'all. Looking forward to you bringing your grandkids and Java bringing his daughter.
0: And we'll all gather at the Thalia Mara Hall.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Absolutely. All right, if you're interested, um, just go online, check out the International Ballet Competition. Yeah, I'm USA sure are,
1: International Ballet Competition. I'm sure
0: there are tickets available. Um, yep. Be supportive and be amazed at what goes on right here in the city with Seoul around the tapping and the tutus of the ballet world.
1: So you've been out of town because I've been looking for you, and you have not been on the scene.
0: No, I uh, went on a little trip with uh, my daughter Zita and her two kids, Wren and Wilder. Uh, I was speaking at the Mississippi Dental Association on Saturday morning as a keynote speaker at their conference, and so I decided sort of last minute to invite my daughter to come along and would take the kids to the beach. So we spent one day and a night at the Hilton Sandestin, and then the second night we moved over to a little place called Beachview Inn in Crystal Beach, and there we stayed in this little um, small hot- motel, which had a fantastic cafe, coffee shop, and restaurant attached to it called Camille's. Uh, It is owned by a group of people, but my friend Charles Morgan, who owns Harbor Docks, uh, is the principal in it, and he's the reason that I chose to stay there. And they have a fantastic dinner restaurant there, uh, Camille's, and for our evening meal, though we took it to go because of the two kids, we had um, sautéed shrimp, we had grouper, we had uh, scallops. Uh, crab, fresh crab meat it was just a remarkable meal the kids chose fish sticks in java they were actually fresh grouper fish sticks
1: unbelievable not like the frozen fish sticks that my family uh, well, breaded, like and, fried. breaded, and, breaded fried. and fried breaded and fried
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh camille's at crystal beach in uh, in and around the destin area if you want to try someplace a little off the beaten path beautiful public beach there uh And uh, that's the main thing that we ate. Uh, On the way home, the kids chose Popeye's. And frankly, I have never eaten until yesterday a Popeye's fried chicken sandwich. They're amazing. And it's funny you said that. I ate my first Popeye's fried chicken sandwich um, a couple days ago as well. Well, how about that?
1: You know, we're kind of behind the curve here. I remember on this very show... We talked about the Popeye's fried chicken sandwich when they introduced it.
0: That's right. They rolled out. They big rolled rollout. it out.
1: And there were, like, lines of people and lines of cars at the drive through even in places, you know, like upstate New York and places that, that you wouldn't think. But, you know, Popeye's does do some chicken.
0: Well, anyway, we had a carload of Popeyes uh, on the way home, (laughs) and it was funny. I bet you're going to be
1: cleaning. Well,
0: uh, uh, fortunately, we went in Zita's car, so uh, it's it wasn't my ride. But we had a great time. The kids loved the beach. We ate some great seafood. We got away. Got to see great friends. Uh, I appreciate uh, the Courtney family inviting me to come to this conference and speak. Uh, it was a bit, a bit uh, of, of out of my comfort zone to speak to a group of dentists, but, you know, I did the best I could.
1: Well, Jav and I were talking before the show, if it was about your teeth, that you do have pretty teeth.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much. All right. In the news, uh, locally, really sad news. Uh, Cultivation Food Hall has closed, and, uh, you know, we've been big fans of, of, of that establishment. We... Uh, We've had various folks on the show who Mm -hmm. were uh, part of the cultivation. Uh, You know, it was sort of an incubator shop, and I don't think people understood that, that the reason there was so much turnover was that was the concept. They invited people in to develop their food concept, and then if they were successful, they would move on to another place, create their own bricks and mortar and their own brand. But that the food hall was sort of an in-and-out, development sort of place and it yeah. just didn't seem to catch yeah, on I,
1: I i really really loved it and uh, it closes on june 14th which is i guess that's wednesday yeah so it was a, a, a valiant effort and we look forward to see what that space will become and someday we will have another food hall in we Jackson.
0: will we will and you know enrica our very own enrica chef enrica williams developed her fauna food works there uh you remember the sushi? B- I mean the uh, the bowl, the, the ohashi, uh, ohashi, yeah, uh,
1: and the poke poke bowl. The people poke bowl that we had in. them on, yeah.
0: and uh, and I've enjoyed their food.
1: You know, that's where I got to know Enrica because I would go to her her place. Uh, you know, she had some just extraordinary soups, like a peanut soup that was just the mm. best thing. There were you know, kind of an African Southern combination, but um, met a a lot lot of fine people there.
0: Yeah, but anyway, we're going to miss the Cultivation Food Hall and we hope something very interesting goes into that spot uh, out there on 55. Um, In the news also, Carol, uh, MSG uh, in the 60s, the late 60s, it was uh, linked to ailments like headaches, numbness, dizziness, heart palpitations uh, and the FDA took it. Gave us warnings about it, and everybody quit eating it, and signs went up everywhere, no MSG. Suddenly it Suddenly
1: went- served here. It was called Chinese restaurant syndrome.
0: Yeah, that's fairly racist. But, um, you know, we went from this food enhancer that everybody thought was really fantastic. You know, it was beyond salt and pepper— Put the MSG on there, and it would knock the flavor up uh, by yeah, ten, ten levels. And then the government tells us, "Oh no, you know this stuff's bad for you. Beware, dizziness, numbness, heart palpitations." And then here in the last old oh, few months, they've reversed all of that. And it's said, been debunked,
1: Malcolm. There has <laughs> been a debunking by the FDA.
0: So you're. You're encouraged, I suppose, uh, to go back to MSG. And, and if our listeners have opinions about MSG, mm-hmm. if they're users of it or they've been afraid of it or they still don't believe uh, that it's safe, you know, you're welcome to pick up the phone. It's toll-free, and give us your opinion about MSG.
1: Yeah, because I know we'll, we'll have one.
0: Also in the news, uh, an article I shared with, uh, with you guys about uh, the number one dessert that helps resolve acid reflux. I mean, it seems like everybody's got acid reflux these days. Yes,
1: because we an eat outbreak. fried food down here a lot. <laughs>
0: it's those Popeye's chicken sandwiches. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so uh, what I was reading, <clears throat> they were suggesting that um, mango nice cream, nice not ice cream. Ice cream. It's a dairy-free, sugar-free dessert made by blending pieces of frozen mango in a food processor at a high speed and basically, you know, merging in a bit of bananas and any other fruit, strawberries that you might like. And it is a very healthy I, I would bet dancers would like this.
1: I think they would. And I would call it a mango banana smoothie.
0: Correct. but the the article was going on and on about the nice n-i-c-e nice cream
1: okay well i've got one for you okay okay i watched this television show i love called somebody somewhere it is a sweet show it is takes place in the middle of kansas and the main characters um ate at a At a party, I can't remember if it was a church party or what, but they called it St. Louis sushi, and it was just the most disgusting thing I had ever seen. So I kind of fooled around and looked it up. But the real name is Minnesota sushi, Minnesota. and it's a thing you betcha. And you take you can do this at home, Malcolm and okay. Java. You take like ham that you buy at the grocery store in the packs, round ham. Mm-hmm. Round,
0: it's got to be round. You have Molded. to be round.
1: Now one Fused. of the one of the TikToks, the lady said it's important <laughs> to press your ham. She said, "Don't you know it's best to press the ham." in a paper towel to get any moisture moisture oh. off of it. So oh so we have a piece of round ham and then you wipe or swipe mm. whipped cream cheese. Very important because it's more spreadable or mm. so they say. Gotcha. Okay, here's the kicker. All right. A dill pickle. A Thank whole you. dill pickle. You lay it on top, on and top you of a spread. Well, you roll it up. You roll oh. it up, and then you cut it in little wheels and put it on a plate with a toothpick. And this is Minnesota sushi. Oh, it's a hors d'oeuvre. It's a, it's a, yes, it looks, and it, it's a hors d'oeuvre. It, it is indeed, but there are places that serve it um, all over. But there were like 20 TikToks on making Minnesota sushi, so
0: Excellent. Who, knew? Who, knew, who knew? Who knew? Minnesota who knew. sushi. Yeah, you Minnesota,
1: go. you betcha. Sounds like Johnny. a neat
0: snack for the kids. Yeah, sounds like If an, you can get them to eat a dill pickle. Yeah. Well, there you heard it right here on uh, Deep South Dining. Uh, We're
1: really grasping at food today because neither <laughs> of us have been cooking this week.
0: Well, my wife has been. You know, she, she made, while I was on the beach with the kids, she made homemade vanilla ice cream, which I love. Mm. So when I got home last night, I had an ice cream. A, I had a nice meal and some ice cream. Today on Deep South Dining, it is our pleasure to welcome Natalie King, the founder of an Atlanta-based culinary business that's known for its fusion of traditional Chinese and Southern flavors. Natalie is also a cookbook author, a speaker, and an educator, whose passion about promoting diversity and cultural understanding through the lens of food is her strong suit. Her cookbook, Egg Rolls and Sweet Tea, features a collection of recipes that showcase her unique culinary perspective, as well as her personal stories and anecdotes about her family and cultural heritage. Today, we're excited to have Natalie here to share with us some of her insights and experiences from the world of food, as well as to talk to her about her cookbook and other projects. Welcome to the show, Natalie.
2: Ni hao, y'all. Thanks for having me. I love it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice little piece there. So what inspired you to uh, write this cookbook, and how did you choose your title, Egg Rolls and Sweet Tea?
2: Well, the idea for a cookbook has been kind of rumbling in my head for a while, um, and it was really just drawn from my some of my childhood experiences, uh, food was always such a central part of my, both my heritage, but of the South too, right? How I can be a Southerner and not love Southern food? Exactly. So it's really a collection of just some of my favorite dishes growing up, you know, whether it was hot Hunan catfish or five-spice rutabaga. Or, um, it was really just what we had on the dinner table. So it's, it's really a, a combination of some of my favorite dishes growing up here in the South, because I grew up in Georgia as a native, and my parents are actually first generation from Taiwan. Oh. So how can you be a Southerner without loving the food, right? Correct. Um, we loved everything about the South and about being American and Southern, from the sports to you know, the spirit of creativity. Um, you know, Growing up in the Deep South, I spent most of my childhood, I think, outside, right, in the backyard, playing around um, with the muscadine vines that my dad planted for us and making dandelion mud pies. So it's really just a, a combination of those childhood experiences, my favorite recipes, and you know some of the inspiration that I've had from some of my, um, my adult experiences being a leadership development consultant and working in the corporate sector Mm -hmm. and how i saw the power of food bring people together and break down barriers and it was just all very kind of inspiring but also impactful to me to see the power of food come together and i thank all the folks along the way who encouraged me to jot down the little stories and anecdotes and insights along the way
1: okay well um this is carol palmer and I really enjoyed reading the book, and um, just so much of this food speaks to me. And I wondered, how did you come up with the combinations, and what exactly is your creative process for writing a recipe?
2: Well, given the fact that my my mother actually stored pots and pans in the in the oven and we didn't have any recipes written down, you know, we were kind of more artistic about it and that's how I am too. I mean, it was really based on what was fresh and local um available in the south and and carol i know you can relate to this too just it's what's available you know whether it's from the winn dixie or from the farmers markets um and growing up it's not like we had special terms like organic and and local food movement it was just what was available and fresh Um, fresh vegetables we loved which i think is a tradition both southern and asian And both my parents were working professionals. You know, my mom was a full-time public schools teacher. My dad was an engineer and entrepreneur and businessman. So at times it was just what was available and fresh and what you had the energy for. So, you know, remember I I grew up, you know, going to county fairs and, you know, fishing and swimming at Lake Alatoona. So a lot of the Kind of the ingredients and the inspiration and the the dishes are just what we had at supper.
1: One dish. In fact, when I got the cookbook and opened the cookbook, the book fell open to wasabi deviled eggs. And there is nothing more Southern than a deviled egg. Malcolm, what do you think? One of my favorites. I know. Got to have a deviled egg on any kind of Southern table or buffet or holiday so talk to us about the, uh, the wasabi deviled eggs.
2: Well, because my mom was a public schools teacher, we often had kids coming over to our home to play games. She was um, a lover of games and sports. Sometimes I would call her the Tigger Mom. So we would have lots of kids in the neighborhood um, playing different games. She created this Chinese dodgeball game. And then afterwards, we'd have snacks. And sometimes it would be, you know, leftover potstickers and other times it would be something like the wasabi deviled eggs, which is, again, just using something that we really loved when we went to other people's homes and potlucks and mixing in a little touch of a spice, which, you know, has some Asian origins. Mm. But actually, you know, there's American horseradish and then there's Japanese uh, was yeah, wasabi The hot so, stuff I
1: just thought That <laughs> that was
2: podcast.
1: <laughs> I thought that was A great example I mean it just really Shows What we're talking About here mm-hmm. Of what The immigrant Communities Have brought To the south And You know, at first it was individual silos of immigrant food, you know, Chinese food, Vietnamese food, Indian food, Southern food. And now it's wonderful that you can't tell where one starts and, you know, and one ends because it's become this wonderful fusion, although fusion is not a word. I mean, it's a word that we used at first, but it, it, you know, it's more than it's just a natural part of what we do, and I think adding wasabi to the deviled egg recipe
0: is, you know, says it all. Yeah, you know, uh, for me, I would put a dash of um, like a hot sauce on top of a deviled egg to get the same. I guess you <laughs> to know get
2: to get the, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the devil to get the impact. The devil. I had to explain what devil meant. Yeah. It. Like, is it from a Sunday sermon or from a chocolate cake?
1: Or <laughs> yeah. And uh, an- another one that that you yeah, know really spoke to me because this is easy the the jade green crunchy okra, and I loved what you said that sometimes you just need to meet an okra where it is correct where exactly. it lives and and here you're not frying it you're not boiling it and and making slimy okra you're just blanching the okra and using it as. Um, You know, as a crudite, I thought that was lovely.
2: I love fried okra, but there's always a time when you're trying to enjoy a local ingredient that you see at the farmer's markets. And you're like, hmm, I don't really like the slimy version. So is there another way that we can enjoy it? You know, and okra actually has some of its origins uh, in Asia, too. So that's what I love about What you mentioned, the the fusion, though sometimes it seems like it's confusion at times (laughs) and the emergence uh, is that it can be surprising and joyful to figure out where some of the foods actually come from and the commonalities that we might discover. For example, black eyed peas is very southern, right, in our traditions, but actually has some origins from South Asia or the rice traditions that we have right obviously very southern but there's also you know a hundred thousand varieties of rice grown in asia so i think that's part of the the curiosity and the inspiration for me of why i think food is so powerful and it's such a wonderful icebreaker right because every recipe tells a story and when we can share those stories and have it be interactive It actually is a very impactful way to uh, also teach and cultivate leadership as well as team building, which is what I do now.
0: Right. Now, your company, Chinese Southern Bell, can you tell us just briefly a little bit about that and and how you came up with that concept?
2: Well, I'm the Chinese Southern Bell, and it's kind of a nickname for me. My company's name is actually Global Hearth, Cooking Up a Better World. I thought it was time to grow up <laughs> because Chinese on <laughs> bells always going to be a part of me, but it was more of a nickname. And my vision and what I was doing around team building and leadership development um, in the corporate sector really kind of um, drove home the point in a powerful way of how food and culture can be a, a platform for not only you know, individual connections, but also how we can use it as a way to um, develop leadership. And so the Cooking Up a Better World platform is what I'm doing um, along with my Sauce Maven, Sauce Line, Mm. and the two together enable me to uh, bring together folks, whether they're boardroom executives or community college students or strangers, uh, brought together through their love of food. And the shared experience of whether it's breaking bread or breaking egg rolls together really does create not only amazing you know friendships, but can be the the foundation for the the empathy and the trust and the collaboration that is important for team building. So
1: in your team building classes, do you actually cook together as a team?
2: We do uh, custom team building classes and tours which, like you mentioned, is important to meet people where they are. So it depends on, you know, whether they want something that is um, just interactive, to meet some new clients, to promote um, some values around inclusivity or diversity, or just to have fun together. So it's always fun, but the interaction and the introduction to the local communities, because one of my tours actually brings in and introduces um, the folks who grow the food, who cook the food, and then we get to enjoy mm-hmm. their creations. So it introduces folks to our city and to our area at the same time and opens their awareness to some of the community issues that not only the people are experiencing, but what some of our, um, our communities are dealing with, especially through the pandemic.
0: Wow, We're talking to Natalie King, who is a cookbook author, a speaker, and an educator and we appreciate that she has this new cookbook coming out. And I wanted to ask you for <clears throat> the home cook, what advice do you have for people who might pick up your book, want to try some you know, new Asian ideas, um, and, and they're unfamiliar or uncomfortable with the, with the notion of combining what they know, which is Southern food, with what you're propo- promoting here, which is a fusion of Asian and Southern
2: well, sometimes folks are intimidated by some of the, quote, Asian ingredients, but I think once they discover that um, it's actually not that foreign um, and actually, you know, combine it with something familiar, um, uh, like, you know, adding a, a chili, a new chili paste or a touch of ginger or wasabi into your devil's eggs, mm-hmm. I think it's It can be less intimidating and combining it with, you know, what you find at the local farmer's market, something familiar with something a little bit different, I think, stretches our boundaries. And it's exciting when we can have a creation, which is not only, you know, kind of out of the box, but actually tastes good. And then we end up creating our own authentic right because what is authenticity what is authentic it's what's something that um, is part of ourselves and part of our heritage and it has to taste good so i encourage right all the home cooks to not be intimidated by trying a new ingredient or a new flavor and then maybe combining it with something familiar and especially if we're able to just keep it fresh and local and healthy then um, it's all good. So I think create your own authentic and that's what I hope folks will do with my uh, recipes as well and share them with me.
1: Do you have a favorite recipe in the cookbook?
2: Well, of course, I like the bacon and collared egg rolls. Mm. (laughs) And because I had serious allergies when I was a little kid, I could not eat dairy and about a hundred different other things. I think I'm trying to make up for it now. Um, I could... (laughs) not have ice cream so I really like Mm. my gotcha matcha ice cream pie which takes a beloved favorite and adds a little twist it's actually very it's a healthy twist because matcha green tea powder has lots of antioxidants so you can have your ice cream pie and eat it too (laughs)
1: Love it. Well, one of my favorite things in the book so far is the whole Pompano, because I actually did whole Pompano last week. It's Pompano season in the Gulf. But your presentation is so incredibly gorgeous compared to mine. (laughs) I cannot wait. I can't wait. I can't wait wait to take (laughs) this home. I mean, it's hard it's to mess up.
2: Perfect. Yeah, it's actually not once you get it. So definitely persevere, Carol, because um, one of the main tips. Did you dry out your fish, by the way? Because yeah, that I dry down. I mean,
1: it's hard to me- you know to mess it. You know, to mess up. Pompano, if you have really fresh fish and you don't do much to it, yeah, unless you overcook it. But uh, yours is beautiful. And I loved how you sauced the fish across the middle, across Mm -hmm. the saddle with a, you know, really wide band of sauce. And I think that that adds a a very dressy element when you're serving it. Yeah, and it's also not
0: covered up in sauce. Exactly.
2: Right. There are easy ways to dress something up, just like the stir fried meatballs. I was a guest for a national meatball day. <laughs> oh,
0: boy. Now you're talking our and, language.
2: You know, yeah, there are days where, you know, we're working all day or taking care of the kids. And when we mentioned meeting folks where they are, you know, I think that meeting where you are, right, where you are yourself and to be forgiving. Right, Carol. So yep. I'm sure that your finished turned out beautifully. Um, and it tastes all the same, right? Um, and it's easy to make it look better the next time. Yeah, but, so but we eat with of, our
1: eyes. And right. I think that, that's, <laughs> yeah, that the picture of your fish versus my fish uh, show, showed <laughs> me that, or reminded well, me that we eat with our eyes.
2: That's right. Well, there, there are different versions of beauty as well, right? Mm. So... Um, I'm sure that it tasted good, and I think presenting something is always fun and creative. So you can grab lots of different garnishes. Um, but I think part of the the spirit and message behind my book is also to be forgiving. And you know, my mom being a public schools teacher, you know, practice makes perfect. And that's also part of the fun in the food and tour experiences that I do, is that folks get to stretch their comfort zones, whether it's, you know, making um, a homemade dumpling or discovering a new ingredient in the supermarket and, you know, at the end, um, they learn some new favorite things and they meet some new folks and friendships and they have more confidence the next time they go or that they make a dish like you will. Okay, I'm
1: going back to the Pompano because I have a (laughs) cultural question for you. Uh, I have good friends here in Mississippi who are from Taiwan and grew up and lived in Taiwan till adulthood. And um, also, I have visited the mainland of China numerous times. And I know that in China, you very rarely see... A fish fillet and my mm-hmm. friends from Taiwan always serve whole fish and whenever we're having whole fish together my friend Grace steals my fish head <laughs> so fish heads are <laughs> I think are traditional that's one is is that a delicacy is that uh, an important part of the fish in Taiwanese and Chinese culture
2: it is um, and it's usually reserved for the guest of honor. I mean, fish in itself, the word, the character for fish in Mandarin and actually the pictogram, it's interesting when you see it in writing, is a symbol. I mean, it's a symbol of, of good luck, of wholeness. That's the reason why around the Lunar New Year, we keep the fish whole. We have whole long leafy vegetables and whole long noodles because it represents wholeness and completeness and so there's a lot of symbolism which I also share in my classes and events around the fish in particular it's a very lucky and you don't want to be chopping up your fish and just it's kind of like beheading it right then you don't have the wholeness in life and completeness um and you know It's funny because growing up Southern at the same time, I learned how to eat whole fish at home and being able to spit out the little bones and everything. And then it was a luxury for me to be able to have fish sticks, for example, at home or when there was a sleepover. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was special to Uh, have fish sticks.
0: Or a catfish Rather, fillet. Yeah. whole
2: fish, right? So it's kind of funny. Different uh, strokes for different
1: folks. It. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Now, <laughs> now I understand why Grace Lee always wants the fish head. It is yeah. a delicacy and usually reserved
0: for the guest of yeah. honor. So, Natalie, yeah. you're... There's only you're,
2: one head, right? Yeah. There's only right. One head, the <laughs> one head <laughs> and one head and and tail. The, Right, exactly. Um, Just like there's only one pair of chicken feet, right? Exactly. But there's also some very tender, the most tender uh, meat is in the cheeks.
0: Yes, I love fish cheeks. uh, Mm
2: -hmm. There's actually meat on the head as well, which is a delicacy.
0: So, Natalie, your book is not only recipes, but it's also stories and anecdotes, and primarily based around your family life, your upbringing, your cultural heritage. How important was that? Uh, to the overall product of the book that you have brought forward?
2: Well, I think, you know, I, I had the opportunity to travel to lots of different countries, and I went up north to New England to go to Harvard, and Vassar was my undergrad, and then I went to Harvard Kennedy School for graduate school. But you know that saying, how you can take the girl out of the South, but you can't take the South out of the girl? Yep. Well, that's how that's how I felt, is – You know, being Southern and being American and being female is really a big part of who I am. And the food and food traditions is a part of my DNA as well. And the Southern food tradition is just so rich and it's so diverse, you know, not only from the native influences, but Spanish. And now we have um, the global influences. And then you add on top of that the Asian diversity uh, and diaspora. And you have just an amazing uh, tapestry of cultures and traditions. And so the experiences that I had. Yeah, learning to be a southern you know, Asian female when there weren't that many Asian families here at the time in Smyrna, Georgia and then having the opportunity to then go up north and to New England and then discover a whole other world of food and organic farms you know, was something that, you know, was just so eye opening and impactful that I decided, wow, this is something that I am not only curious about, but it has the power to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so that's what led me to doing the leadership development and actually creating Global Hearth. Um, And my own sauce line is because I really saw not only how powerful it was, but I realized that it was my passion and my curiosity. And it's really it really was the synergy that um, created my happiness as well. And I was I was so thrilled to see that I could bring smiles to other people by sharing it.
1: Well, you and Malcolm and I have uh, one other thing in common, and that is our participation in the Southern Foodways Alliance and I see that you mm-hmm. have participated in I guess you were part of the Atlanta tour. Is that correct?
2: Yes, I was one of the leaders of the the food tour along Buford Highway. Mm-hmm. I created the first food and culture tour for Buford Highway over ten years ago and they asked me to do it for the Foodways Alliance event. And It was a great opportunity to share not only about the food there, but about the community and the families that run the establishments. I mean, it's really a hidden gem, and now it's been discovered. Back then, when I first created it, there was no Yelp. um, There were no major food tours going on, and a lot of folks – were scared of the area because it wasn't, um, you know, it was kind of dotted with rental properties and didn't have a lot of sidewalks. And so, um, the event and tours that I did really demystified not only the food but just the, the community and the amazing uh, people. Well, and tell I'm our sure listeners,
1: tell our listeners who may not be familiar with the Buford Highway, the significance of it as a cultural and food mecca?
2: Well, it is uh, an amazing and unique stretch, about seven miles that runs uh, parallel to 85 here. And The reason it's so unique, and I called it a hidden gem, but that was <laughs> before it was discovered by the Food Network, is because it's really a, a rare stretch where you see the diversity of not only the mom-and-pop kind of immigrant establishments there, but also some of the other um, businesses in uh, that represent the different continents and different um, cultures. So there is rarely a place that you'll be able to, you know, be able to get your Vietnamese banh mi and also do your kind of shopping for different Asian trinkets and also be able to go to Plaza Fiesta and celebrate Cinco de Mayo, um, and then get your bubble tea all in one stretch. And it's where people live as well. So it's not a food court. Um, it was actually a community, a city that was neglected in some part, It was just kind of overlooked over many decades. And you know, even throughout the Olympics, there was a lot of economic development in other parts of town in downtown and Midtown, but less so in the Buford Highway community area. So um, it's really, a wonderfully rich and beautiful area for food, but also for the people that have persevered there. The families that have um, made their, you know, first generation and second generation and raised their kids there. Um, I think it's being rediscovered and appreciated as an important part of our history and a a part of our our culinary heritage, but also our economic development history.
1: Well, a question about the Beaufort Highway, because that's that's such a long stretch. Were the immigrant shops and restaurants drawn there because of low cost and low rent? So, you know, I know it organically happened, but what were the... Yeah, the reasons that it came together like that.
2: Certainly, the the lower rents and the access to the highways was a draw. And if you're you know, an immigrant family um, or business, just to get started, those are important affordability and access factors. So, yes, that was how it got started. But it was also, there were some old like shopping malls that then later became a, abandoned. And that's why I mean, it's funny. Cause I, I said it was kind of a, a beautiful place because I know it through the people in the community, but it's actually physically, it's not, it, it's not a beautiful fit, place. Right, because, <laughs> right, right, right. So, so physically um, as a infrastructure, it was, you know, had some abandoned um, strip malls and, you know, through the, um, the recession, it was hit hard through the pandemic. It was hit hard because it was mostly immigrant businesses and small mom and pop shops. And like I mentioned before, it was kind of forgotten for a little while um, while other parts of the city were being developed. So, yes, that was a reason for it's some of its beginnings is that it had a lot of rental properties. It had some old kind of abandoned strip malls. So it has a lot of concrete. And then you had some of the other, you know, the businesses that naturally kind of can make do with that kind of infrastructure move in. And then for immigrant families, you know, many of them are on limited resources and they're just trying to survive. So they start there and then um, they raise their families there. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's wonderful to be able to get to know a community, not only just for its food, but to know the stories behind it. And yes. to me, that's what's inspiring. You know, when I go and eat at one of the dim sum restaurants to meet, you know, the manager who who beams with pride, telling me you know, not only about you know today's special for their food, but also we've gotten to know each other and how his son just graduated from GSU. Right. And it's the first time he's had right, a family member go to college and then be you know surviving through the recession and the pandemic. He says we didn't move out. You know we, we almost did. We almost moved out from Buford Highway, went up to Gwinnett County, but we decided to weather it out and right. stay here. Very Now it's discovered, and people love it.
0: That's terrific. Uh, One of the things Carol mentioned. One of the things that we had in common. Another thing that we three have in common is that Carol and I never met a sauce or condiment that that we did not love. And you have a whole line of those. And I was wondering, in closing, if you could tell our listeners about your briefly about your sauce line and about how to reach you, how to find you, how to order your 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 uh, products. Well, my
2: sauces. um kind of developed organically as well, like everything else, because I opened my refrigerator door and it was just lined with bottles and sauces. And I realized that none of them really tickled my fancy all that much. I I ended up kind of like combining a whole bunch of them every time and none of them really captured the flavors of my childhood, Uh, you know, growing up in the the Bible belt, you know, the, the peaches from the farm stands, the honeysuckle nectar that I would have in the backyard, the Vidalia sweet onion, uh, my grandmother's, my Popo's tomato wedges marinated in sugar vinegar brine. Mm. So I ended up just using my own taste buds kind of as a litmus test, and I set out to fill the gap. And that kind of started my entrepreneurial journey that would give me the nickname of the sauce maven. And so now I have a line of award-winning sauces, a sweet chili peach, a soy ginger Vidalia, and a Asian barbecue teriyaki pineapple, mm-hmm. which I still like to mix and match. And they've won several awards, the Flavor of Georgia and also International Sophie Awards. And I just love it when all ages from babies to adults just love them because they're family friendly. And I got them launched in the local Whole Foods um, and also independent retailers. And you can find them online at GlobalHearth.com. And you can also follow my fun saucy adventures on The Sauce Maven on social media.
0: Terrific. Natalie King, we thank you so much for joining us today. Good luck, good luck with your new cookbook, egg rolls and sweet tea, surprising and delicious fusion of Chinese and Southern favorites. Thanks
2: for the opportunity. I enjoyed it.
0: Same here. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Natalie. And what a fascinating topic uh, of uh, merging these foods, working together with uh, these concepts. Deep South Dining is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Think Radio. We are funded by generous contributions from listeners like yourself, and we thank you. Our show is produced by Java Chapman. For my co-host, Carol Palmer, and our special guest, Natalie King, I'm Malcolm White, asking that you stay tuned now for Marshall Ramsey's show. Now You're Talking, followed by Southern Remedy at 11, and please join us every Monday and Sunday morning at 9 here for Deep South Dining, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.